0: Welcome to the Lend Academy Podcast episode number 252. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lendit Fintech. Today's episode is sponsored by Lendit Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary, with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join Lendit Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com. Today on the show, I'm delighted to welcome Sean Salas. He is the CEO and co-founder of Camino Financial. Now, Camino Financial is a really interesting company. They're a small business lender focused on the Latinx community. And as you'll hear in this interview, this is more than just a business to Sean and his, his brother, his twin brother and co-founder, Kenny. This is their life's work. And you can hear the passion in his voice where he wants to do everything he can to help Latinx small business owners. And we go into some detail about how he's doing that. We talk about the impact of the current economic crisis. We talk about how they're funding these loans and the typical terms that the loans have and uh, you know, the typical small business owner who comes to Camino for a loan. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. Thank you for having me, Peter. My pleasure. So you know, I like to get these things started with new guests by giving the listeners a little bit of background. So maybe you can tell, tell us what you did before you started Camino.
1: Yeah, before I started Camino Financial, my twin brother and I, I can never introduce myself without introducing my twin brother. (laughs) (laughs) We've been partners in life from the day we were born. And right before starting Camino Financial, we were both getting our MBAs at Harvard Business School. Mm -hmm. And And we used that opportunity to incubate what today is Camino Financial. And before that, we were pretty much cutting our teeth on Wall Street in investment banking and private equity, both of us worked for two of the largest minority-managed funds with a focus on investing in minority entrepreneurs or communities with a high concentration of minorities. And, and so that's really where we got our backbone, so to speak, in business and, and really helped us propel what communal financial is today.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So then so it sounds like you incubated it. You had have, you have the idea while you're at Harvard, or we'll tell, just maybe tell us where did the idea come from originally for, uh, for the company?
1: Yeah, well, no, our story really stems back from our upbringing. Both of us are sons of an entrepreneur from Mexico that came to the United States in pursuit of the American dream. And I know that sounds very cheesy, but quite <laughs> frankly, it's a story of many immigrants that come to the United States. And so like an immigrant with very big dreams, my mom came to the U.S., and she saw entrepreneurship as the only avenue, given her limited educational background, to generate real wealth for herself, her family, and her community. Mm -hmm. And so she opened over 30 restaurants here in Southern California. Wow. Yeah, while pretty much raising six children. So my mom's super mom, but aren't all moms. And, uh, And so we grew up in that environment. Unfortunately, my mom did lose her business. It was like a house of cards that came crashing down after 25 years of very hard work. Kenny and I were 12 years old at that point in time, and my mom was devastated. So she decided, guess what? I'm going to remarry, move back to Mexico with my two youngest sons and restart my life. And that's effectively what happened. You know, for a 12-year-old kid moving back to Mexico... That was pretty traumatic in its moment, but quite frankly, it was a blessing in disguise. Mm-hmm. Uh, we grew up in Mexico from 12 to 20 years old, something that I think does reflect in the cultural and nuance of how Camino Financial does work today with our members. Uh, we came back to the U.S. in re-pursuit of the American dream. Once again, the cheesiness, but we got to relive that immigrant story. Coming back to the United States while we were citizens and we are citizens, you know, in a way, feeling what it means to come to a country in pursuit of something bigger than what you can achieve in any other place in the world. And so that effectively, you know, laid the groundwork for what we ended up doing, you know, going to UC Berkeley, then Wall Street, as I mentioned, and then incubating communal financial law at Harvard Business School.
0: So is it fair to say then that you, the idea really germinated you know, well before you even came back to the U.S.?
1: Yes. No. I, I mean, it's so funny. My mom wanted us to be Mexican Mexicans, and I consider myself a Mexican American. Right. She really wanted to keep us in Mexico. But when you're a 12-year-old kid and you see your mom lose her business, there is anger that is born within you. And right. I, I'll never forget the day that we pulled out of our home in Hidden Hills. You know, we were born in a way with that silver spoon and it was taken away from us. Mm-hmm. And the entrepreneur in me was born that day. There's no right. question. So it was born many years before Camino Financial became a thing and we called it Camino. It wasn't a light bulb moment where I was in a cold shower and, oh, all of a sudden, I need to help (laughs) Latino businesses. No, it really stems, it's it's ingrained in my DNA, so to speak. Now, that said, I do think there were very, working on Wall Street specifically in private equity and working for funds that had an orientation towards investing in minority entrepreneurs, which is always, as I mentioned, been a theme in my life. Mm-hmm. I felt that private equity as an investment vehicle is suboptimal to invest in Latino owned businesses in particular. Right. But only because while this market is big, the average size of a Latino owned business measured by our research is about right in the range of $200,000 in revenue per year. That's one third of the size of non Latino owned businesses. And in private equity, we wouldn't invest in businesses that generated less than $7 million in EBITDA or profit cash flow. And so so you know private equity of course was catering to those very few businesses that are very large and made it but the great majority you know call it 97% plus of all latino owned businesses are generate less than $1 million in revenue and right. skew towards that $200,000 range. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Okay so then El Camino means the way, right? Is, is there is that the translation?
1: El Camino means the way. Right. And so we called so what we're doing at Camino Financial is simple. We're a fintech platform pioneering affordable credit to underbank Latinx businesses, mm-hmm. which we quantify to be a fifteen billion dollar unmet credit demand in this market. Now, the reason why we use the word Camino deliberately is because we get it. Not all businesses are gonna get the optimal interest rate day one, right? They're gonna be charged in the high 20s, low 30s with our core product. And so what we wanna do is help them build a path to more money over a longer term and at a lower cost. And so in order to create that path, we need to pair capital with an educational experience that enables them to formalize their business, develop a credit history and quite frankly get the paperwork in order so that they can then qualify for a lower interest rate loan
0: right right so let's let's maybe dig into that for a little bit so tell us about the loan product what's the what's the range of interest rates what's the typical loan size loan term that sort of thing
1: so our core product is a micro loan so it's a loan between five to seventy five thousand dollars. The annual interest rates are between 255 and 40%, and the term, we start at 24 months, which is, which is very unusual for our industry, by the way, as you know, and we go up to 36 months, there's no payment penalty. So we're, we've been able to benchmark our data, and so our average APR is 33.5% to make it comparable with other products at a 24-month term. The average APR that we've been seeing by competitors is in the range of 41.4% at 11-month term and with daily or weekly payments. So the net result of our product compared to benchmarks, it results in a 50% lower monthly payment with a communal financial loan, all things being equal on the loan amount given to the borrower. So we're really giving our borrowers a lot of cash flow relief and fundamentally what we're doing versus anyone else. We can talk about tech and AI, but fundamentally what we're doing better than anyone else is we're giving our members the benefit of the doubt. And and if you don't mind, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our members and how they look like. So we're talking about members, 25% of them don't have credit history. The median account balance is $2,300 in their account at point of financing and our average ticket size is $15,000. And there's a very large amount, I can't specify the percentage for purposes of their own security, are undocumented here in the United States. So when you even look at those terms and parlay that with the credit profile of our members that are truly thin file, cash based, micro enterprises, not even small businesses, you're going to right. call that a micro enterprise when you're generating around between 200000 and $300,000 in revenue per year right? So these are micro enterprises and you give these terms to them. It's like God said, they're not, they're, they're, uh, you know, more than grateful. And quite frankly, that's just the starting point. Once again, our view is that while we think we're competitive day one relative to benchmarks, we think that we need to facilitate that Camino, that path to more money at lower interest rates and over a longer term.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So then, so what, T- tell us a little bit more about the borrowers themselves. Like, what are the, what sort of businesses are they? What industries do they operate in?
1: Yeah, so we're the big industries are construction. That's about twenty six percent of our business. Retail ten percent of the business. Transportation ten point four percent of our business. Restaurants and bars is about nine point six percent. And then the rest is distributed between what we call broadly defined professional services. Sorry, when I say the rest, I mean the next big chunk. Is professional services and they're your your janitors your landscapers that are that are serving the market Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. okay so I'm curious about this particularly you say you've got some undocumented workers I mean and you said a lot of them don't even have a credit history so how what data do you use to underwrite these people you and I imagine you can't just say yes to everybody so How are you, you know, basic, maybe maybe it's just start with that. How, what What data are you using when there is very little data available?
1: Yeah. So one thing's worth noting is, is I I do want to challenge the notion in the market that there's limited to no data available. These businesses do have bank accounts. Right. 75% of them, well, of our borrowers, it's actually a bigger proportion for the broader market, but of our actual borrowers that people actually get loans. 75% do have credit history, maybe thin file, right? And so we can do a lot like other in industry leaders with that data. Now, there's nuance to that data. Let's go back to the bank transaction data. I, I mentioned that the median account balance of a borrower point of financing is 2,300. I told you the frequency of transactions in that bank account, it'd be a lot lower than what a lot of other alternative lenders are comfortable lending to because they also want to see that transaction frequency, mm-hmm. but there is data there right once again, back to the credit you know not forget about the credit score we don't look at the credit score, but looking at the credit file, albeit thin, there is data there we can look at credit utilization, we can look at credit history and we can look at types of credit et cetera and so so I think there there is data there, not to mention you can get really fancy and look at the metadata of your application, evaluate the user journey. Usually that's better to use, not so much for the credit decision, but for fraud detection. And so therefore, there is data available. I, I don't want to give the notion that, you know, in, because our audience are other people that are actively investing or alternative lenders themselves, they get it. And I don't want to give them the notion that the data sets are fundamentally different. Now I do think given our specialization in the market, given the fundamental benefit of the doubt that we're giving in our market, I think how we cut the data enables us to risk rank our model for the thin file cash-based micro enterprises. And it's not Latino focus, one we can't and nor do we want to ever discriminate from an ethnic or cultural standpoint. Uh, But it's worth noting that thin file cash-based micro enterprises there's nuance to that and so by specializing we're able to look at the data sets i would say 80 percent of them are probably similar to that of other alternative lenders right and then we derive given our specialization some risk-breaking criteria that helps us derive a credit decision now i will tell you something that we do that others don't do peter is that given the cash-based nature of our business we have to do something that's very prominent in emerging markets. But for X or Y reason, it's not, I, I don't hear it. or I rarely ever hear it here in the United States, which is a methodology called surrogate income underwriting. Now yes. surrogate income underwriting means you basically need to look at data sets and certain data points and derive from them what real cash is flowing through the business and the household. So for instance, let me give you, an example. I can't predict what Warren Buffett's net worth is based on the car that he drives. I think he drives a Cadillac. But when we're talking about evaluating credit for businesses at the base of the pyramid, right, you can, with a high degree of certainty, predict what the real cash flow is based on using different data points because the disposable income is so limited for these demographics that you can make some really smart guesses. And based on that, not only can you make a credit decision, but more importantly, you can actually better understand what the capacity for repayment is for that given borrow. And that's probably one of the trickiest parts of this demographic, but we've been able to get really good at that. And once again, this is not nothing new. It's just very prominent in emerging markets where you have an absence of that that trackable cash flow data that we're used to having here in the United States.
0: Okay, so I guess what you're saying is one of the data points is what type of car they drive, and how much how much that's worth. And so, are you? And then obviously, a lot of these cars will have a, will have a car payment, and you can you can I imagine pull data on on that information. But I'm just curious about that. I mean, you you say that like the surrogate data is I mean really. You're just trying to look for data anywhere you can get it. Is that that sounds like what you're saying?
1: Absolutely. And then we'll be given our specialized view on this demographic, we're just going to use that data to derive probably different conclusions or different decisions. We're going to apply that data maybe in different ways than other alternative lenders are using it. Right, right. Okay.
0: And so are you how are these people coming to you? Is this all 100 percent like I imagine there's you, I mean, I don't know. I presume you have an app, or is it all on, a web, on the web? Or or do you, do do people come and see you? I know that in person. I mean, how does it? How do the people fill out applications?
1: So our application is 100% online and 100% tech enabled. Now we just hit our sixth year anniversary about a week ago, mm-hmm. and Peter, there were so many people that have been lending into this market for many years before we started that would laugh us out of a room when we told them we were doing a digital first, digital only approach with our market. That Mm -hmm. they needed to see you, they needed to touch you, and in the absence of that tact, that you would be able to earn their trust. Forget about the transaction piece, we can tech that part up. But the trust element is a critical piece of the puzzle in acquiring this market at a low cost to make the unit economics work, because, as I mentioned, our average loan is $15,000. Other alternative lenders are about twenty-five dollars to $30,000. So we have to work with roughly half of what they're working with in terms of the earnings, at least on day one. And so what that means is that we had to go tech first. We had right. to be tech only. And what we found is that we were even pleasantly surprised ourselves that this market really has embraced a tech-enabled process, as long as we pair that with a very trustworthy brand. So I'm always a little embarrassed to tell people this, but Kenny and I did have our own mini series on Discovery Channel, En Español, called Emprendedores, which means entrepreneurs in Spanish. Hmm. Uh, We have created one of the largest bilingual content databases in the United States, And so, if you Google Préstamos de Negocios, which is small business loans in Spanish, anywhere in the United States, we're going to be the number one ranked website there. We're also ranking for other different terms that have nothing to do with credit, but have everything to do with helping businesses grow and be bigger and better than themselves. And so, predominantly, we saw an opportunity very early to not only be tech first, tech only, but also build our go-to-market strategy around that and then embellish that with a brand and authority that gives people the trust that they need. Cause if they don't trust you, I can tell you right now, if they don't trust you, they're not going to, they're not going to transact online.
0: Right. Right. So you're based in Los Angeles. So obviously you're lending in California. Where else are you, are you lending in this country?
1: So we, we lend nationwide okay. uh, we lend nationwide with the exception of, New Jersey, North Carolina, North Carolina, Hawaii and Puerto Rico. But we so but other than those states we lend nationwide. Now, not surprisingly, the three largest states that count for 55% of our volume are California, Texas and Florida in that order. And so those are very prominent states with a high concentration of Latinx businesses, but at the same time it's worth noting that there are <laughs> There are a lot of other businesses out there, right? 45% of businesses out there are also still looking for loans outside of those three core states. And they're fairly, you know, evenly distributed. I would say probably, you know, New York is a, a, a distant fourth place, but still worth noting Illinois as well. But at the same time, when you look at the rest of the, the nation, you're, you're pleasantly surprised to see the distribution. And in fact, it's worth noting a little bit of a plug on our research report. Uh, We release a quarterly Latinx small business survey based on the application data that designates an ethnicity. So we can't include the non-designated application data, but of the designated application data, we have about 27,000 applications and we use that data to show the world where our businesses are distributed, what the average FICOS are, what the average revenue is, what are the trends in that data, and you can see that 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 geographic footprint in in that report.
0: Right, right. Now, you, I, I've I've looked at those reports. I think they're you do an excellent job. Really provides a, a great service. I think to the industry. So I wanted I want to talk a little bit about the the current state of play because you've been reading a lot in the press how you know, we know small businesses are suffering. They say it's been Black and Hispanic businesses are suffering more. Uh, those own-owned businesses are suffering more than others. So maybe you can, you've also got a very good insight into the Latinx community. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how they are coping, how they've coped over the
1: last three months? Yeah, so, so just to share some stats, um, research states that about 91% of Latinx businesses won't be able to access the relief funds that are made available by the government Forbes also had an article that noted that fifty percent over fifty percent of black and Latinx businesses expect to close their doors if the current environment withstands for the next six months and so yes we've been very we were very early in raising the flag to the industry and to the government that Black and Latinx businesses are being left behind, not only in their small businesses, but also in healthcare and in systemic injustice. And so this is a very polarizing moment for these minority communities. And and, and the call to action needs to be, hey, we need to not only acknowledge that and put data around the market so people learn about it, but we also need to create nuanced and specifically design products and services around these markets so that we can reverse this trend. And so so to to answer your question directly, yes, we are seeing our businesses hurt. I'm proud to tell you that our very quick response to this was leveraging that large content database and that team behind it and completely completely repositioning Camino Financial and its blog around a COVID hub, COVID and other relief resources hub, because it's worth noting, as I mentioned, that many of our members are undocumented. So we need to think broadly in terms of what those resources are, whether it's direct access to funds or other forms of relief that enabled them to grow their business. So that's a narrative that we're hearing a lot, and I will underscore that narrative. Now, I do want to mention, Peter, that we also don't hear the second narrative as often. That second narrative is a narrative that black and brown business owners are resilient. They are as resilient as any other market here in the United States. And let me explain why. The reason why they're resilient is, yes, we just went through, before pre-COVID, 11-year expansion market. But the reality is that many of these businesses, these underserved businesses, right, have been living through many micro-recessions in their own world. Right. right. Well over 80% of them operate in low to moderate income areas. The socioeconomic disparity gap has only amplified itself in these last 11 years pre-COVID this is all pre-COVID and so they know how to live in a recession-like environment in fact they they don't just operate at the business level they operate at the household level and so the household helps subsidize volatility and cash flow of, of, of the business whether it's the wife, whether it's the kids not only working for the business, but finding supplemental forms of income to subsidize the business at different points in times. The flexibility of these businesses, given how small they are, to reinvent themselves and recover from these very difficult points in time. And so I will note that while we are seeing a market that has predictably, unfortunately, it was very predictable. And I have a lot of articles on the subject well before people started throwing these numbers about 91% of Latinos and 95% of blacks aren't going to get the PPP funding um, and 50% are going to close their doors if this continues. A lot, well before that, I was predicting that they were going to be left behind. But despite that, I think in many ways, they also expect that and adjust accordingly. And it's worth noting that because. You know, I know. You know, one logical question is how many of your borrowers did get PPP? How many of them got idle funding? So, you know, when we talk about that, I can tell you that yes, you know, many did not. I'm I'm proud to tell you we're actually actively putting our own research together to show you how creating that content hub, creating that direct channel of communication with the mar- market enables you to over-index in a substantial way in terms of those that do qualify for PPP funding actually getting PPP funding. Anecdotally, I can tell you many of our members did get PPP or IDLE funding, and we're going to put some research out there to demonstrate how some of even the soft touches of education really make the world of a difference. It's not just around the PPP funding design, which does need some work, but also just being a real distribution channel of content and capital to enable them to take advantage of resources that
0: exist. Right, right. Because I see I'm, I'm looking at your website on my other screen here and, and right in front of the center, you talk, you talk about the Paycheck Protection Program. You talk about other relief programs. You've got a whole section here. So you quoted this 91% number, but I imagine your customers' are, was percentage would be much lower, I imagine, or the, you know, the, those that those that are going to partake will, because they're, by definition, I imagine they're more educated and they're, and they trust you and they're going to look at your, what you've done.
1: That's exactly right. And so we'll, we'll be releasing more information on that in the coming weeks, but I can tell you anecdotally based on the data that I'm looking at, that, that, that number is going to be a lot lower than what the, what the market benchmarks are of 91% for Latinx right. is not receiving PPP funding. Yep,
0: yep. Okay, okay, well, we're almost out of time, but a couple more things I wanna to get to. So let's talk about the other side of the equation here. And you know, I read something about Goldman Sachs, but. How are you funding your loans? Who's, where, where's the capital coming from for these businesses?
1: Yeah, well, you probably won't be surprised, but we actually got our money from Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> we needed to get money from investors that fundament, are, are equally willing to take that leap of faith in the right. market So we found that money in Mexico. So, uh, Crédito Real is a publicly traded company in Mexico. It has a $2 billion balance sheet uh, lending business multinational with assets, not only in Mexico, but in Central America and in the United States across different lending verticals, uh, including auto financing, payroll financing, and now small businesses. And so, you know, starting at the end of 2018, 2019, they partnered with us, and we've really been able to fly since they were a critical part of our ability to really prove out the, the investment thesis in this market. And so, you know, to date, we've lent over $60 million in loans, and we're barely getting started, you know, pre COVID, uh, you know, we were on track to do, you know, in the range of $100 million this year. Um, And, you know, very much like any other of these businesses, we, 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 the market is big $15 billion. So we still consider that to be very small. But in the scheme of things, we are the largest uh, Latinx focused lender in the United States, and we're we are barely getting started.
0: So then, uh, just just I'm curious about the obviously. The, I imagine the the loan volume has gone down as PPP, but with with the uh, with the crisis. But are you, you you've maintained a, a certain level of lending throughout? I imagine.
1: Yes, we have, but like the benchmarks that I've been hearing, volumes are down between 50 and 80 percent and we're within that range. Um, right. It's hard to lend to businesses that are hurting. and we really need to recognize our swim lane. Uh, you know our product is designed for an expand um, a, a company that was growing. And these businesses don't need growth capital. They need relief capital. Right. And they need recovery capital, which is at below market rates. That's not sustainable over the long run. But, but, you know, finding new ways of, you know, changing our capital structure and those participants in that capital structure so that we can give better terms to the market, even beyond relief. And we could qualify that as recovery. And so we're actively working on that because the last thing we want to do is put our businesses at risk, especially during these times. And every day, all, all day, we're always about, you know, underwriting a loan for mutual benefit. And so we need to be very thoughtful and careful about how we deploy capital during these times.
0: Right, right, okay. So then, so as we look forward to hopefully coming out of this crisis sometime in the well, in the, sometime in the near future, when you look at the what's on tap for Camino, what uh, what's coming up for you guys? What are you excited about?
1: Well, what I'm excited about, and if you don't mind, I'm going to share a very brief framework. Uh, the framework of our strategic thinking is that post-COVID's in three stages, the three R's. Uh, the first R is relief. The second R is recovery. And the third R is reinvention. And so as we think about relief, you know, in our case, it's been a, a content play predominantly. Some fintechs have been, have been able to be PPP lenders themselves if they're of sufficient scale to be able to do it cost-effectively. Uh, in our case, we we did a predominantly a content play, and then then the second one is recovery, right? Recovery is really how can we design our products for below market returns? So work with different philanthropists, work with different uh, players in the space that want to help this market, and then design our product around that recovery, rebuild capital. Mm-hmm. If I like to call it that. Um, And so right now, we're right in that stage. So we're actively talking about uh, launching a recovery fund, actually, in in where you live, uh, Peter. So I'll let you know as soon as we get that going. And, And so to really enable... Latinx businesses, and particularly the undocumented that haven't been able to even get access to that relief fund, let alone recovery. And then the third stage is the reinvention stage. This is the part that gets us all really excited. I can tell you that reinvention is just going to amplify themes that we've been identifying for a very long time the use of tech and AI in order to not only automate our processes, to, but to make better, smarter credit and fraud models, uh, the need for transparency in the process and giving our borrowers the best market terms available, the importance and high burden of a marvelous UX, UI, but one that super serves specific market niches. But the the fourth element that I'll talk to you about in the reinvention stage is really coalescing our stakeholders, right? Not just the alternative lenders, right? But the government right? The private investors, and in my case, organizations called CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions. I think as has been noted in PPP 2.0, there have been uh, dedicated allocations to CDFIs to lend into the underserved markets that we're talking about, but there's been a lot of underinvestment in these markets, uh, the adoption to technology has been slow, with the exception of a few CDFIs out there, and and quite frankly, it's been hard for us to become a CDFI ourselves. Now, I hope to announce in the next few months that we too will be a CDFI. But and and then, how can private investors participate in this process, right? As it relates to creating tax incentives in order to. Uh, decrease the cost of capital? how do banks play a role? How do we modernize CRA, the Community Reinvestment Act, which was really designed for small businesses in the 90s that you know really anchored around you know distances between branches right in low to moderate income areas, but quite frankly, as we 're closing branches and even banks are digitalizing themselves, how do we modernize that and so that's going to be an area of our focus at communal financial. And, you know, I do think there is a silver lining here. I even think the Black Lives Matter protests have really uh, raised a lot of awareness and the need and disenfranchisement of black and brown communities. And I think these are the vessels. alternative lenders are the vessels in which we can enact that change. But we also still need to work with the government. We need to work with banks. We need to work with private investors to make sure that we can structure this capital and deploy this capital in very efficient ways that are nuanced for this market.
0: Right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, Sean. Best of luck. I'll be I'll be following along with your progress uh, closely, and uh, I wish you all the best as you grow your business.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Okay, my pleasure. See you.
0: You know, these are challenging times for any small business lender. Certainly, uh, Camino Financial will be no different. Uh, and uh, But I do appreciate the fact that, you know, Sean is already talking about the recovery phase of this crisis. You know, he did mention how, you know, Latinx business owners have been uh, you know, impacted in a dramatic way uh, during the crisis. But he's looking at the, at the recovery phase. And, and the fact that he's so ingrained in the community, it seems to me that he's got such a close ties with many of his borrowers that those are the sorts of things that are really going to hold him in good stead, hold Camino Financial in good stead as they as they emerge from this. And I think they, there's, it's companies like those that, that really maintain a connection with their customers. The borrowers really appreciate the extra efforts they've gone. I think, uh, I think they're the companies that are going to come through this crisis well. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Today's episode was sponsored by LendIt Fintech Digital, the new online community for financial services innovators. Today's challenges are extraordinary, with the upheaval affecting all areas of finance. More than ever before, we need to come together as an industry to learn from each other and make sense of this new world. Join LendIt Fintech Digital to connect and learn all year long from your peers and from the fintech experts. Sign up today at digital.lendit.com.